Okay. Check. Were you talking to your mic real quick? This is David Hollander reporting from Earth. Okay. It's been a while since I've been here. Things look relatively <laughs> the same. The same people seem to be in power. They have different <laughs> faces, but they're the same people. And I still have to uh, close my eyes a lot so as not to take in these things that are happening around me all the time. That's great. fourth episode of the Animal Riot Podcast brought to you by Animal Riot Press, a literary press for books that matter. I'm Katie Rainey filling in for Brian Birnbaum while he's taking some time off. It's the 44th episode and the last one of 2019, but this is a really special episode, not for those reasons, but because I get to sit down and chat with one of my favorite people in the whole world, David Hollander. David Hollander is the author of the novel L.I.E., a Young Lions Fiction Award nominee, and the forthcoming Anthropica, which is Animal Riot's second book due out September 1st, 2020. But before I get to his bio, here is an Animal Riot first, our first brought to you by. And this episode is brought to you by an ad for Anthropica. Coming September 2020, from the author of L.I.E a novel readers called terrible, depressing, unsatisfyingly ambiguous, and a book I ripped in two and threw in the garbage the minute I was finished. David Hollander brings you Anthropica. Critics are tepid, if not outright ambivalent. Some even feel that Hollander's latest wasted so much of their time. Why not waste more by taking to Goodreads and writing, This book was very weird to me, and I have to say that I didn't understand any of it. Another accuses the author of atheism, or is just a super prude. I didn't appreciate the continuous use of foul language and sexual dialogue included in nearly every character's story. Such a tone might be best described as awestruck. For a book that has not even been published yet, and for an author whose motives are more than a little suspicious, this is the highest of possible praise. This September, one man's quest to publish a book you'll never read comes to an end. If you like stories about underdogs who find redemption, if you crave books with happy endings and compelling plots, if you like a book that you can curl up in front of the fire with, or a book that has something to teach you, Anthropica will be of no use to you. If you only read one book this fall, make sure Anthropica isn't it. Pre-orders now available at AnimalRiotPress.com. <laughs> That's great. Every time. 
if you want to see the complete trailer, head over to AnimalRiotPress.com and you can see the images and the trailer in all its majesty. And his work has appeared in McSweeney's, Conjunctions, Fence, Agni, Unsaid, The New York Times Magazine, and Best American Fantasy, among other reputable and disreputable publications. I had not read that part of your bio yet. Yeah, I think maybe I'll take that out. I like it. Yeah? Okay. He lives in the Hudson Valley with his adorable children and wife, and they dress up like Donald Trump sometimes and Bernie Sanders. That was before we thought Trump had any chance of winning the election. That was for Halloween. Yeah. And I was Secret Service. You were. Yeah. And the kids were Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. And Donald Trump. Trump, yeah. Which is the right. scariest thing you can be for Halloween. Yeah, yeah. That, I, that must have... Right, Halloween was less than a month before the election. Yeah. How do you like that? Spooky. Yeah. He teaches writing to writers who want to teach writing to other writers at Sarah Lawrence College. You may or may not be able to find out more about him at longlivetheauthor.com. Hi, David. Hello, Katie. So before we really get going here i want to talk about how we first met because it's a really cute story it is it's not actually how we met but it's how i found you in this world and why i even ended up going to sarah lawrence in the first place so this is going to be a story i don't know yet i I think think. you have told you this story really i'm I'm sorry i'm sorry if this is like a story that's really meaningful to you and and i don't (laughs) you don't remember and i don't remember (laughs) i hope that's the case because that would that'll that's our relationship okay yeah (laughs) i i there's a lot I don't remember, but go, go ahead. Tell me the story. Well, so I like, what is this? Eight, nine years ago now. When, been, I f- yeah. when I first decided I was going to grad school, I applied to six schools and got into five of them. And one, I even got a full ride, which was exciting. But to make my decision, I decided to read one book by every current faculty member at every one of those schools. I'm such a Hermione in that way. Yeah. And I read LIE. And that was that made my decision that day. I remember I was in Arkansas sitting on my back porch. It was really hot in March because it's Arkansas. And I finished LIE and put it down. And I was like, I'm going to Sarah Lawrence. And also for Brian Morton's uh, A Window Across the River. Yeah. That, yeah. that book also. That is, that is a beautiful book. I really like Brian's books. But I do not, I do not remember that story. I'm yeah. sure I've been told that story. And that but, means you've probably read LIE more recently than I have. Maybe. I've read it again since yeah. then. Uh, people re- reference it sometimes, and I really don't. You don't I'm not lying wrote. at all. I don't even remember the plot points that they're, yeah. that they're mentioning. Yeah, it's really uh, very wispy in my memory. I more remember what was going on in my life when I was working on it mm-hmm. and what I was thinking about and why I was writing it the way I was than I remember anything that's actually in it. Well, why did you write it the way it was? What do you remember? Well... I'm really glad you asked because when that book came out, it you know critically it did fairly well. Mm-hmm. Like m- more people liked it than than disliked it, but the parts of it they seemed to like were the parts that I didn't think mattered very much. Like the good reviews were mostly about how it was a convincing and unusual portrait of suburban malaise, mm-hmm. right? But for me, that was just the material that yeah. I had. And what I really wanted to write about was consciousness and selfhood and this feeling at that point that was really sometimes difficult for me to navigate, that I was not actually David Hollander, but mm-hmm. that I was kind of floating above him, that I was like watching my life more than living my mm-hmm. life. So all those like philosophical preoccupations, which, you know, connected for me to things like Immanuel Kant and mm-hmm. to literary theory and to Borges and to like these really headier things. Mm-hmm. 
all of that stuff was either ignored or pointed out as the book's failure. Yeah. Right? And so that was really... So I, I remember all of those influences, and mm-hmm. I remember the book growing out of experiences I had as an undergrad and, and studying with Rick Moody, who sort of introduced me to the idea that fiction could be more than storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was like all these really important thought patterns and influences, I think, were, were driving that book. And I, I remember what it felt like to work on it and to have conversations with my friend Michael Smith-Welch about it. Mm-hmm. But I don't remember very well what's in the book. Well, Sarah Lawrence, unfortunately, did not put me in your class my first year. Right. I was very upset about you it. I had to wait. I did. Yes. I had Brian Morton, which was a great class. I loved his novel class. One day we're going to get Brian Morton on the podcast, although he has said no a couple I think, of times. I think he's um, just trying to live off the fame of his Twitter career. He, he has <laughs> he's very really good, good at Twitter. He is very good at Twitter. Which we'll get more into Twitter later on. He'd be a great interview, actually. Yeah. 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 Well, no, Sarah Lawrence did not put me in your class, and I was very pissed off for a year. And then they assigned me a thesis advisor who did not care for my writing. And Well, even before that, I got yelled at by a teacher who did not like my writing in their class. I've told you the story. Do you, yeah, do you, okay. want, do you want to I say their names? No, I can't no, say it on... Good. No, that's good. Because if you said their names, then I might say something bad about them, and then I'd be in trouble. Yeah, so we're going to keep it. I have to be it. very careful. We're going to keep... They no longer work there. Okay. So I'll say that. Yes. Yeah. Okay. But I was pretty much in like a, a, a crisis of selfhood by the time I right. reached your class. Yeah. I like had convinced myself that I was just garbage and shit and yeah well that i i remember i remember the arc of your semester in my workshop really well because there were a couple of early things that you that you wrote like responses to little prompts i'd mm-hmm. given and things and they were really cool and there was definitely potential there but by the end of that semester you were writing some stuff that i just thought was really on fire yeah. just totally like blown away i remember at one point writing in the margin of one of your manuscripts just something like holy shit, Katie, how are you doing this? It was just like one chilling yeah. phrase after another. You know, it was like reading Cormac McCarthy or something. So how anyone could have been looking at your stuff and not have seen enormous talent is sort of beyond me because wow. that's that's the part you get good at spotting is talent. Mm-hmm. You, you, you become less good at knowing who will actually like publish soon yeah because because your predictions about that can be wrong but you definitely can see who has the raw talent well I went like halfway through that semester in your class I had started my thesis and I remember in the morning I had a meeting with my thesis advisor and then I had like a half hour break and then I had conference with you yeah and my meeting with my thesis advisor could not have been like more disheartening yeah in which she said you know the thing about time is that we can only move forward and i just like felt so gutted <laughs> by that comment yeah, there i goes was like faulkner I yeah i know so, yeah. <laughs> i just felt so gutted by that and then i i did, took a break and i was like reading a book and then i walked over to conference and and you told me it was the complete opposite right yeah and that like yeah, uh, yeah well the thing about it is i'm always right uh, like, uh, I don't have a lot of confidence. I'm not confident about very many things, but I do feel like I'm always right mm-hmm. when it comes to gauging student work and talent. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot, of, a lot of writing teachers have this problem where no matter what they say, they're really looking for the same kind of product they would churn out. Yeah. You know, and when they don't see that, 
they feel like the student is somehow failing. Mm. And, and also, I think very few writing teachers think, especially fiction writing teachers, think about language. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes, I mean, there have been people who I've wanted to get admitted into our MFA program who have not gotten in. And that's because the package maybe they've submitted to us, mm-hmm. the stories aren't very well put together, right? There isn't like a strong sense of, you know, uh, the Chekhovian plot arc or whatever, mm. right? Uh, but for me, if I see like three good sentences back to back, I'm like, yeah, mm-hmm. they're in. Because that's talent, yeah. you know, and it can be molded in, in whatever direction that person ends up needing to be molded. And, but yeah, I, I don't think a lot of people read that way. Well, that's a really good segue into like the way you write and what you teach and yeah. the way you teach. Because it is like so completely different. I'd never had a class like yours. And right. it was like what I had been looking for and didn't realize. You should talk to the... Um the tenure board I know. in my college. I know. I could sell I could, see I could I could Yeah. Just hire me as your lawyer I, in that situation. I, that's a great Can idea. you have a lawyer? Can we I, call? That would be great if I could just sit there silently and say I would like to defer this question <laughs> to, to, my to my lawyer. I would be great at it. Yeah. Well, what so it really has a lot to do with the structure too and just like the way you talk about writing. What what are those I'm not going to say like four things. I don't know if you've changed it since then, but Oh, the way uh, you yeah. talk about stories—you don't talk in terms of like. Character no, it's true. Plot. Well, what, what happened was um, that's connected to this course that I had started teaching to undergrads right around the same time you were you were in my graduate workshop—a course that I call the Enemies of Fiction. And you know, I was um, thinking about the John Hawkes quote about um, he began he began writing with the belief that plot, character, setting, and theme were the enemies of the novel. You introduced right? me to John Hawkes and oh yeah, the Lime but, Twigs, my favorite book. Oh my god, that book is just so fucking good. Yeah, but uh, I almost uh, most people read... hate that book. You know, I tried to. I, I was in a in a here are some air slash square <laughs> scare quotes square um, quotes now <laughs> square quotes. Yeah, one of us will be able to speak. but I was in a book club with these two other writer friends and I got to pick the first book Mm -hmm. and I picked The Lime Twig by John Hawks Mm -hmm. and uh, my my friend Eduardo who's a great writer great novelist uh, he uh, reported to the third person in the book club I can't believe David gave us this book this book is fucking unreadable (laughs) right so not everyone loves John Hawks right but the people who love him really love him which goes back to teaching you know like you have to remember that just because you're not the reader for something doesn't mean those readers don't exist but that course the enemies of fiction tried to replace those four categories plot character setting and theme Mm -hmm. which uh, Hawks had imagined as as his enemies with four other categories Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I was just trying to figure out what is it that I value in fiction? What what am I looking for if I'm not really looking for, for that, for mm-hmm. like the clean plot arc and resolution and all that nonsense? And so those categories were language, structure, voice, and ideas or concepts, mm-hmm. right? And so I started organizing my classes around those like four dividers. And I still do that although I don't always say that I'm doing that Mm -hmm. but that's usually what I'm thinking when I when I sort of figure out reading lists but it changes I totally stole that from you and use that in my high school curriculum oh that's great it's a great way to teach teenagers I do it with my middle middle school kids I teach who you know you know them remember oh yeah Yeah, those kids you taught before I taught them oh yeah up in cold spring they're cute kids yeah well John Hawks the so in your class at the end of the semester we're supposed to bring in like a like a master 
piece or like something yeah, you yeah, want to share to read that, out loud. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And I remember I read the greatest paragraph that's ever been written, which is from the lime twig, yeah. which is talking about this man beating this woman. Oh, yes. But it's yes, the most yeah. it's the most beautiful paragraph yeah. I've ever written. It's horrifying. Yes. And it, like I wish I had it in front of me, I would read it. But it's talking about the strip of fat across her stomach yes, and like a, yeah. a sound like a dead bird falling into a field. And yeah, yep, I know that section very well. Yeah. And I read it with like in like such like a religious fervor in yeah, class. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> when I looked up, everybody was like, "It's like crickets." <laughs> and you were like almost laughing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> At the distance between yeah. your experience and the and the yeah. reaction. Yeah. It was experience. a great. It was a really great moment. I will never yeah. forget that in your class. Yeah. Was that was Brian in that class? Brian Birnbaum. Yeah. Mm-mm. No. Okay. He's a year behind me. Okay. Yeah, I did not meet him until I graduated, actually. Yeah. I'm and I didn't to... like Brian Birnbaum when I first met him. I don't think anyone liked him. Well, I didn't like him because you liked him. Ah, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah. And you had mentioned him a few times in conference with me. And I'm like, who is this fucking kid Yeah, who's um, coming in on my territory? Well, you know, uh, Brian Birnbaum had come and visited my class mm-hmm. when he was trying to decide whether or not to enroll. And so I knew him. Actually, he... For a visitor to a class, I wish he were here because he was super rude. Like he, really? uh, like I remember him like chewing gum the whole time. Like uh, I've that never really like wanted to tell anyone to spit out their gum except for that one day where I was like, you know, I don't even. But then afterward, he wrote me some like we had some long email exchanges where, mm-hmm. you know, he was trying to make a, a good decision about where to go, and I was telling him honestly, like, well, there are some things about this program that you know I you might that might not be a good fit Mm -hmm. and i think he appreciated the fact that i wasn't trying to like sell the school to him yeah i was like i I have no reason to try to sell it to you this is what it is and i said you know if if you come here you get to study with me Mm -hmm. and that could be really good Mm -hmm. so yeah well you liked him enough to mention him in my time with you (laughs) sorry katie and so i i do that all the time though i talk about one student with another student yeah Uh, yeah well, I didn't like him, and then we met, and within, like, two seconds of us meeting, I was like, all right, I see why I do it. Like, so. Yeah, yeah. And we had, like, a yes. really good conversation yeah, on, well, like, DFW. Both of you guys sort of cut through a lot of, you know, bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's, a, there's a lot of bullshit, so. Well, speaking of, like, Infinite Jess and DFW, I mean, like, do you consider yourself like a postmodernist, what is postmodernism anyways anymore? And like, do you consider yourself talking about these different, like the way you look at writing? Yeah. Well, I don't know that the label helps anyone understand what anyone else's work is like, but I know when I was, uh, you know, in my mid twenties and reading like a lot of the American postmodernists, you Mm -hmm. know, uh, Robert Coover and Donald Barthelme and Angela Carter, although she's not uh, American. But um, I was discovering this thing that I didn't know until then fiction could do or was allowed to do. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of the stories I was falling in love with were sort of fractured and they were shattering the idea that fiction should resemble reality. They were shattering the idea that fiction should be earnest or reverent in any way. And in some ways, the way it actually feels to me to be alive and in the world was captured better by yeah. those crazy postmodern texts than by well-behaved books yeah. with, 
well-worked-out plots and endings. So something was going on for me when I discovered what people call postmodernism that was really important. But what I thought Wallace was trying to do, and this probably is close to to my objective with Anthropica, mm-hmm. is I thought he was trying to use some of those postmodern methods, fracture and play, disjointedness, sort of a delayed grat- gratification, mm-hmm. right? I thought he was using some of these techniques. Technique sounds wrong, sounds too cold. Some of what he loved about postmodernism was certainly informing a book like Infinite Jest, but it was also a book that had a heart, mm-hmm. right? And I thought he was trying to figure out a way to take what he'd loved about postmodernism and kind of marry it to what he loved about modernism. Mm-hmm. And I've heard it described. There's a critic, Stephen, Stephen something. Oh, I know who you're talking about. He wrote a Shit. book about Franzen, actually. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah and, but he mentions Wallace in passing... But anyway, he was trying to define this idea of post-postmodernism, which, uh, you know, it's a lot of syllables. But, you know, as this idea of sort of bringing matters of the heart and real human concern and compassion into the uh, sort of formal matrix of postmodern writing. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that is what I'm trying to do. It's It's weird because you feel like, some readers are only going to see the one part and some are only going to see the other part. Mm-hmm. You know, like readers who are programmed to look for postmodern mm-hmm. methods and means, that's what they'll see. And readers who really are more probably in the majority of readers who are just looking for like stories about humans in conflict with one another and yeah. suffering, they're only going to see <laughs> yeah. what you think of as the modernist parts. But for me, the importance of the way I write is that those two things are living together mm-hmm. and yeah just trying to in some way articulate a kind of fiction that matches my own sort of uh, teeter-totter between like total nihilism and total belief <laughs> which uh, in any given hour I've swung through that a hundred times so I think like the biggest thing for me and I I think you even mentioned it in you, we do these things at Sarah Lawrence called craft talks in which, you know, a faculty member will give kind of a specialty talk on their on their writing. And you gave a craft talk a few like when I was in school towards the end. And you even said, like, you know, at the end of this really great craft talk, who which hopefully we'll publish at some point mm-hmm. coming out somewhere, you know, you were taking questions from the students and one asked you, like, essentially, like why you write this way or why you read who you read and why you really respond to it. You responded by saying, you know, I have suffered. There's been a lot of pain in my life. And I felt something like I I was understood by these stories. And like that was the way that I have had felt that these texts, while as nihilistic as they might seem at times, like the paragraph I'm talking about with John Hawks, yeah. I've never felt more understood in that moment. And that's where it, it was it really resonated and that's why that fiction matters to me like yeah that's yeah. why Cormac McCarthy I mean like he can write you know Blood Meridian about the fucking judge just yeah, wreaking yeah. havoc on a countryside and I feel better than had I read some like uplifting yeah yeah story yes yeah. you know yep well, I think we're probably all looking to um feel seen and known when we read mm-hmm. literature and since we're looking to be seen when we read a book, we can, I mean, for me, it's not like I feel 
crazy or anything when literature doesn't reflect me back to myself. Mm -hmm. But I have trouble engaging with a, a lot of books that just seem... A lot of what is called literary fiction seems to me like just a better dressed version of Hollywood cliche. Mm -hmm. Like it seems like it's the same kind of like three acts. Mm -hmm. it's, it, you know, it's just the words are better. So like if somebody can write like, you know, pretty descriptions, <laughs> yeah. somehow they're able to be considered more, more literary, but they're telling the same basic lies and embracing the same systems that I think literature ought to be trying to expose and rail against. Literature should be an act of resistance. This is why I love Push the Bully so much. Yeah. Your no is still stronger than your yes. From right? Poetics for yeah. Bullies. Yeah, from Stanley Elkin's story, Poetics for Bullies. And I think, you know, this, I told you that that craft talk you mentioned, I've mm -hmm. been trying to develop a more cohesive essay out of it that would be, you know, to be read rather than to be spoken. And somehow this, the thesis has something to do with like resistance, mm -hmm. like what makes literature great for me has something to do with like refusing all systems, refusing the status quo. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like uh, like the sword of Damocles or whatever that dangles over a ruler's yeah. head. You have to be willing to sit in the throne knowing that it's all going to end, Yeah. you know, and being aware of uh, the transience both of our lives and of our whole species and all of this stuff that, like, just got here and will be gone before the universe can blink. And I feel like literature that is unaware somehow of our tenuous position is not reflecting me back to myself. That's an interesting phrase, reflecting back me back to myself, yeah. especially in like the current literary landscape and like what we're looking at. And like, you know, uh, there's people really advocating for books that reflect them and their identity. Yeah. But what you're talking about is like, you could read like, I'm thinking about like Otessa Mushfeg yeah. with McGlue. Like that is a book yeah. that I totally feel that reflecting back yeah. to me, but that has nothing to do with me and my identity. Right. So yes, I think that's yeah. like a really interesting conversation, especially today. Well, sure, because it's it's true right now. People seem to be retreating into smaller and smaller identity boxes. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't seem like the kind of connection we ought to be looking for. Mm -hmm. I, I, like, I just think the the entire species is in peril, yeah. right? Okay, well, we had a Rosetta interruption there for a minute. Well, let's talk. I mean, Anthropica is, is it Anthropica or Anthropica? How do you want it pronounced? Uh, I say Anthropica because the way I would say like anthropic principle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's but I don't really out. I don't really care how people say it. Okay. As long as they buy it. Well, what does Anthropica mean? Why well, that title? Yeah, because uh, there's a subtitle too. Yes, the subtitle is new. So the anthropic principle is this idea that to boil it down, that like humans are the center of the universe, mm -hmm. right? So for me, the Anthropica, which is sort of the name that Stuart Dregs, a character in the book, actually gives to the universe. Mm -hmm. He gives to the universe because his discovery is that it, the whole universe is only here because humans want it to be, that human desire is, the, is uh, mm -hmm. all there is. So for me, it's kind of like a, a joke that takes a scientific theory to its extreme. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and the Anthropica theory is that like the world's resources essentially run out like every eight days or something. Yeah, is that what yes. he says in the book? Yeah, I, I think it's eight. I, I, that, that has changed. It was 30, then it was eight. I can't remember. Yeah. But yeah, the idea is that he has, Stuart has basically run the numbers, right? Mm -hmm. And he's looking at how much 
oil and coal and water, like how much we're consuming mm -hmm. every day. And based on what there is on Earth, you know, he's created this really complex software program. Based mm -hmm. on what there is and what we're using, we exhaust all of the Earth's resources mm -hmm. in, in a matter of days. And so he's asking, well, how could that be? Yeah. Right? That's not that's not strictly speaking possible, mm -hmm. and yet it is. And so, you know, from there he develops this theory that it must only be here because we want it to be mm -hmm. here. Somehow our desire for it is replenishing it. Mm -hmm. I have been walking with you on the street before and you have stopped me and you have said, where the fuck does all this come from, Katie? Right, like all looking this at power stuff. lines yeah. and stuff. So, like, where where does that come? Have you always been that way since as a kid? Like, were you overwhelmed? By oh the world? yeah, yeah. I just I remember asking my father on a drive once about like highways and how far they went, you know, and just the idea that they're even even just thinking about roads, right? Like, how on earth could we have poured this much asphalt mm -hmm. all over the planet? Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the entire planet can be circled in a matter of hours in mm -hmm. a swift flying jet. It just doesn't seem big enough to sustain the rates of consumption of billions and billions of people. that we have enough trees to breathe. Oh, with. how could there be enough trees? That's, I mean, yeah. yeah. And really, how, how can there be enough coal that we're still burning coal? Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, I mean... Seven and a half billion people yeah. uh, needing stuff powered through through you know coal consumption. Yeah, like how that just uh, even now talking about it that seems crazy to me yeah. that, that 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 could be true. So I think Dregs might be onto something in the book. You have in your press kit a really good quote that I just want to read because I used it as the very beginning because I think it like. I don't know. I think it just puts into the the book into a good light or just shows kind of like what you're doing and right. and what we're talking about here. You say fact 18 million tons of coal burned globally each day. Fact 80 million barrels of oil burned globally each day. Fact 10 million trees shredded and pulped each day. It didn't really take 24 gigabytes of RAM or his software design prowess to verify an inconvenient truth that every thinking person had already at some point intuited. None of this shit was actually possible. Like, I love that quote. I read yeah. that and I was like, I'm using that for everything. Yeah. I to like put that, that too. Out. It was fun to hear you read it. Um, yeah. yeah. Are those, is that right? Is that actually 18 million tons of coal? Is that what we burn? Globally? Yeah, I, I think those numbers, I, I should, yes, but I think they might be on the modest side. Yeah. A couple of them, I was told when a friend read the book that he thought, based on his own quick research, mm -hmm. that those numbers might be higher. But yeah, I'm trying to be accurate based on what I could what I could hunt down. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's also, I mean, that's, that's kind of like the scientific part of the book that's yeah. happening. So you have this like very like, I don't know, almost kind of like mathematical portion of the book. Right. One character is like, <laughs> he has a whole thing with math, his math. His math, his useless right. Finn, math. His yeah. math. Yeah, I love when people make fun of his math. Yeah. But like really huge parts of the book are failure and desire. I mean, yeah. desire is what in Stuart Dregg's The Scientist's Theory is what's keeping the world going. Yes. And right. then so many characters are just like plagued by their the great debacles and their failure. Yes, and yeah, like yeah. One character sounds very, very familiar. Well, a lot of them, they all do really. But, yes, but yeah. Grace Kitchen, she's a failed writer and in... Yeah. And, and, in her eyes. So what, uh, I guess... Yeah, I'm wondering if there's a question at the end of that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you've written, a, you've, you write a lot about that, like in yeah. general, and a lot of your stories, like failure comes up and desire and... 
Yeah. I guess just like why are those why do those things drive you so much and like are they so prevalent in your work? Yeah, well, I think desire is prevalent in my work because, you know, desire is suffering and if we and we can't kill it and so we're always going to suffer. Mm-hmm. And I really do think suffering is what unites us all. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just to go back to the conversation about like identity, right? You can you can bet whoever's sitting across from you is in pain. Mm-hmm. That's like a, that's kind of a, a given. And I try to start conversations from there, right? It's what unites us. As far as failure goes, I think you know. So I I published a book in two thousand and one. Mm-hmm. And I really thought I was going to be like the next literary big thing. You know, I, like that book was published in a really big way by Random House. I was being, you know, driven around in black town cars to readings, mm-hmm. you know, asked to do like TV appearances, all kinds of stuff that seemed to herald, that seemed to confirm this belief I had at the time that I was better than everyone. So <laughs> it was really a nice, it was a nice period of ignorance and bliss. But over time, you know, I I continued to write books Mm -hmm. and no one wanted them and they were getting weirder and darker. And so until, you know, we're talking about like 18 years having written five other books that no one wanted and just feeling like with each one, hope was harder to, to sort of maintain. But that's certainly not the only failure I've had in my life. You know, I've, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a there's a, a lot in the in the book about like sports, like mm-hmm. Finn Finn, who is the the guy who does all the math, mm-hmm. is also an ultimate frisbee player, mm-hmm. which is a which sport I have played well. and and <laughs> yes, have played. I have played at the highest level of my sport for many years, and I was just thinking about all the different ways in which I was psychologically deficient mm-hmm. uh, in in that part of my life too, and as as a result, had had failed in certain ways, whether or not they mattered to other people. Mm-hmm. So some of the failure stuff is personal, but the other part is I feel like most of us are probably defined at least as much by our failures as by our successes, but no one really wants to talk about that in, in the mm-hmm. same way you're, you're, you know, if you meet someone in line at the grocery store, you're not supposed to tell them that you, you want to die. You're supposed <laughs> to tell them how nice the weather is. Yeah. So, there, so there's something about, uh, I don't know, trying to use uh, use my fiction as a way to deal with some of the issues that you can't discuss in line for groceries. Well, I'll say since we decided, you know, since we worked out the contract, the verbal contract, and then the actual one of of publishing your book, you've seemed more ecstatic about fiction writing than you have in a number of years. Oh, yeah. Well, it's that's true. I would say that I probably had given so when I finished Anthropica, mm-hmm. there's what, three, four. When did I send it to you that time? That was like four like, years ago, a long time ago. Yeah, after many years of me hounding you. Yeah, yeah. So it, I finished it, it a long time ago, and I really thought this this has got to be the book, right? Mm-hmm. Like I like I knew it was good, and then when I couldn't get anyone to buy into it, you know, a couple editors at big big houses they liked it, but they were mm-hmm. like, oh, we can never get it past our. I, yeah, know? I'm interested in that. Why? Because the book is fucking phenomenal yeah i mean i honestly i did i did know that i had done something good and original but then when no one wanted that i did feel like well that's it like i don't have any i don't have anything left in the tank you know Mm -hmm. this is like a bunch of books now and it even became harder to teach Mm -hmm. because you feel like you don't really have a platform if you're Mm -hmm. not putting books out and so yeah, my attitude toward fiction had become something like, well, it's this like secret hobby I engage in, you know, like 
putting ships in bottles or something like it seemed to lose any real sense of weight in Mm -hmm. my life. And of course, you know, I'm happily married. I have two kids and they're often like the center of my life, too. And so it was really easy just to, you know, focus everything on them. You know, they're still obviously the most important thing. But but yeah, so literature and my part in it had seemed to sort of... Mm -hmm dissolve a little bit in in its significance. And then when you guys said you wanted to publish the book and gave me the opportunity to go back and start looking at the book again, I would say that, yeah, it's true. I was sort of, you know, my own fire was reignited. And, you know, it's good to feel like you're a practicing artist and not just somebody trying to teach other people Mm -hmm. to be practicing artists. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm so interested i mean this goes back to we've had this conversation on the podcast about like why certain books don't get published you can read a book and be like holy fuck this is a masterpiece which we've had several other readers so far read it and you're going to read a little bit today on the podcast which is exciting for me i I could reread it and i have now over the years several times you have yes but like why certain books don't get published in the first place it's it's i don't know yeah you know well it's frustrating because i see it with my students as well Mm -hmm. like you know i've had a number of students publish books and i've always been really happy for them but some of the students who have written the what i see as the best books Mm -hmm. have a harder time getting them published Mm -hmm. and um you know, it's like people people resist the thing that doesn't resemble the product they yeah. know. they The product that they know, and in this case, the product that they know they can sell yeah. because they've sold it before. And sometimes they forget that, like, it really, like, some of the some of the books, you know, on their list were books that were quite unusual. Mm-hmm. And that, But, yeah, so it's hard to get people to take a chance. And it's also, I mean, I don't know. In my case, all the people with the most power have told me not in this exact way but have indicated that there's something wrong with my work like there's something wrong with what I'm doing mm. and it makes you feel crazy you know because you're reading the things that those same people in power are like applauding and uh you know just lionizing and, and consider like the the highest this is the highest execution of the form and you're like yeah i mean it's okay it's yeah. you know it's it's certainly doing the things that novels do Right. Sometimes it feels like everyone just wants to put the needle down on a record called Golden Oldies and like <laughs> yeah. enjoy its melody. Yeah. Well, I feel like we've talked a lot of shit here in vague terms. So yeah. Maybe we should put our money where our mouths are and have you read a little bit and see yeah. what happens. Okay. Who knows? Um, maybe people will universally rise up against us now after this and the planet will fall apart. Well, I'm not a. Uh, for the record, I, I really don't. I don't want to dis. Everyone should love the books they love. Sure. Right. And the fact that a lot of people love a lot of books that I think are just okay mm-hmm. doesn't mean that I'm right. It it just means that I have to believe I'm not alone in the universe mm-hmm. and that there are other people like me who are looking for the kind of book I'm looking for. Yeah. And I feel they are being underserved in in a lot of ways by the literary community. And they're they're definitely out there. The thing is they may not there may not be as many of them. Yeah. Right. And so everyone is just playing to, you know, playing the statistical game and but but yeah, I, I like to 
remind myself to be careful because it's true. We are talking a certain amount of, of trash, but I don't think that these books are not good. Sure. These books that don't speak to me, I think they're they're very good. That's that's mm-hmm. how they get out there in the first place. It's just that I think there's a lot of other stuff that is as good or, or yeah. you know, for me, better or more relevant that uh, has a harder time getting mm-hmm. out there. Yeah. yeah. I really am not trying to like alienate anyone. You know, I tell no, my students all it. the time, like no one can tell you what you love, right? But, but I think in general, yeah. like you can say like more difficult, anything with a whiff of experimental like yeah. language in it is generally the hardest stuff to get out there and that's what we're talking about and there are writers across a broad variety of backgrounds and cultures that write this like more experimental stuff and has a hard time finding a home and that's true i like i i don't know i have no problem talking trash okay good good Uh that's why we want to publish the books we want to publish Right, of course. Yeah, you're, in some ways, it's uh, it's reactive. You're yeah. looking at what's missing, and you're trying to fill fill the gap. Yeah, you know, it's admirable. All right, what are you gonna? Re- what part are you reading from? Well, it looks like I'm going to read chapter twenty five. Oh, that's helpful. Yes, Here. I'd like to. I like to say the numbers so people will know that I've worked hard. You know? <laughs> like, oh, there must be twenty four preceding chapters, Great. and yeah, and uh, there's uh, there's a lot of chapters in the mm-hmm. book, like mm-hmm. seventy or something. Mm-hmm. Um, So this chapter 25 is a piece. So as you have intimated, there are many characters in the book. One of the characters is a man named Henry who is suffering from ALS and is becoming slowly locked in Mm -hmm. to use the nomenclature of his disease. The Argo maybe is a better word there. Anyway, as he's becoming locked in, he's discovering that he has access in some weird way to the desires of other people. Mm and is beginning to discover that he may even be able to control or manipulate those desires in some way. So the piece I'm about to read is the first piece in which this is starting to become manifest mm-hmm. for him. So you won't really hear Henry's name until until the end of this chapter. Okay. But yeah. You read this for the very first reading too. I think you're right. Yeah. yeah. And it's probably the same as it was then, although I probably made some edits for that mm-hmm. so that it would stand alone a little yeah. bit better. Yeah. So now there's this issue where the microphone angle of the podcast is making it difficult for me to see the work, but I'll, I'll do my best. That's okay. okay. It sounds right. good still. You can. All right, good. Chapter 25. On the streets of lower Manhattan, in the middle of a bright late October day whose sunshine possessed a seasonal pumpkinish quality, a yellow cab's driver was lost momentarily in an internal litany of accusations against spouse, God, and country, both the United States and the country of his birth, Pakistan, when he made an aggressive left off of Canal to raise a veritable symphony of horn-blowing from those myriad travelers forced to reluctantly uphold the social contract by tapping their brakes, an inconvenience for which no forgiveness could be brokered neither on earth nor in heaven, this left-turning Pakistani-American swiveling his head to defiantly toward those righteously indignant drivers, and offering with his right hand an obscene gesture just as his left hand, which loosely gripped the faux leather steering wheel coverlet, felt the percussion of impact, the front bumper having met with something heavy but yielding, and then an instant later a small squeal, perhaps his own, cut through the cabin, and the woman he'd struck arrived at the terminus of his windshield which spiderwebbed but did not give, and he thought he saw in the flash of her bewildered face a kind of knowledge of all the lesser crimes he had committed on this day and days prior, 
that would now be dwarfed not only by the charges of vehicular manslaughter, but also by the guilt and regret he would carry inside himself henceforth, not to mention all the blame he would harbor against the forces conspiring to ruin his entire disposition on this particular day, thereby leading to the careless left turn on which his life was apparently destined to hinge, though at this particular moment his brain was releasing a flood of endorphins into his system such that he exited the cab and knelt before her ruined body in a state of total calm, with the smell of grease and petrol hanging thick in the air and rendering the orange light heavy and woolen, such that he felt the urge to remove the light from the bloodless sack of bones that had only recently been a real live woman, and which now lay defeated within a ring of witnesses summoned by her sacrifice. The driver put both hands on his head as if breathing deep after a strenuous workout, and in his brain pit he simply wished for it not to be real. He wanted it not to have happened, and he strangely trusted that this wanting would be enough. And of course he had no idea that at that very instant in Florence, Italy, a woman and her lover had just completed their obligatory tourist climb to the top of the Duomo to look out across the twilight city whose notched ceramic roofs glowed a deep ochre, while in the distance a blue-silver river snaked through the foothills surrounding the city proper where, the woman imagined, other lives were unfolding in a kind of idyllic grace. She saw in her mind's eye acres of unruined countryside and a huge peasant table at which neighboring families drank wine made from their own grapes and laughed and touched each other lightly while a matriarch beckoned from the door of a farmhouse in the dying light. And this American tourist woman wondered if the young man beside her dreamt of such a life, while the young man, for his part, was struck anew by the woman's beauty and his good fortune, and as he held her hand there against the railing at the top of the Duomo, images of her naked body, her warmth and her smell and the feel of her small breasts in his hands flittered through him, as did the first ruined cells that would a year from now spell testicular cancer, and a year after that his death. But right now these lovers hoped only that each shared the other's private longings, and neither of them could imagine that any force on earth could supersede their wanting, despite the fact that they did not know the shape of the universe, nor the fact that at that very same moment an Alaskan wildfire fighter, what they call a smoke jumper, was furiously digging line a mile beyond the hot zone when his radio crackled and a superior's voice informed him of a sudden bizarre shift in wind speed and bearing that was almost as unprecedented as the fire itself was at this time of year in this region. And yet here he was digging through the still soft soil of an arid pine forest 15 miles outside Anchorage suburbs with eagles soaring above not in their usual capacity as alpha predators but as an army retreating in the same direction that he was now informed to retreat, because the blaze was bearing down on him and what was his current position exactly and could he huff it over to the ravine on Jockey's Edge because this was a total shitstorm and the air <laughs> cover was still 40 miles north, do you copy over? But he could already hear the monster screaming toward him and casting its hot tentacles of flame out over the tree line, and although he had, of course, always known that his work was a little bit crazy still, he'd never once considered this no-win scenario. He didn't know a single man who'd died fighting fire, and even had he considered the possibility of his own death, and now the flames were ripping through the old growth so that staring off into the middle distance he had the impression that the forest had been torn open to reveal an inferno that it had always hidden and that backlit the veil of earth and sky. 
Well, even then, he would not have envisioned doing what he did next, which was not to make his own wingless flight toward a ravine unlikely to save him from the juggernaut whose heat was of an order that no earthly heat approximated. In fact, he could already feel that his blood was hotter. What it felt like was like he was also the fire. No, he did not flee, but only dropped his shovel in the dirt and kneeled in the loam and began praying for his little girl Wendy, now five years old, praying for her to live a good and happy life. He closed his eyes and felt the hair on his forearms singe, and he did not know it, but he was repeating the words, Jesus Christ, have mercy on her soul. He thought of the little girl's smile and the way she sort of glowed with white light. Emanating her own private energy signature, he prayed that she would be spared pain, and that wherever he was now going, the energy signature would be there, too. He wanted the part of himself that was her to go on forever. He wanted it with an intensity that could drive turbines. And as he waited to know what it would feel like when he'd left this earthly tangle of suffering and need, he did not know. Of course not. How could he know? That right then in a ranch-style three-bedroom situated in the dry red dust and clay of a desert suburb sprung up, i.e. the suburb, some two decades earlier on the outskirts of Tempe, Arizona, a 15-year-old boy was on the internet ogling with an intensity akin to worship, short videos of young and largely interchangeable men engaging in a grisly assortment of sex acts, their hairless bodies contorted into positions completely useless for anything but these highly specific micro-activities, the boy whispering derisive evaluations into the close-smelling air of his bedroom. Disgusting. Gross. Ugh. As he leaned into the screen and imagined their hands on his bare chest, their mouths on his thighs, his closed window shade glazed like a deep-fried donut by an early afternoon sun that even in October seemed intent on vitrifying the entirety of this bone-dry state of the Union, made temporarily habitable by a hundred thousand air conditioners humming off-key and without cessation, the boy's housing grid vibrating with electrical current derived from unthinkably enormous coal-fired generators somewhere out in the middle of this endless fucking desert. And even the boy knew, in the reptilian part of his brain, that it would require near-infinite quantities of coal to sustain this paradigm, and that it simply was not possible if considered rationally as a kind of problematic. And the boy imagined what might be said or done to those daring to come out in the conservative precincts of Tempe. He imagined Todd Barone, football-playing meathead and gleeful torturer of the meek, following him home after school, forcing his way into this very home and doing very, very bad things to the boy and his family. He imagined the word fag carved into his chest with a razor blade. He imagined, for some reason, crosses burning on his front lawn, which lawn was the same patch of dead straw that cinctured each identity half-acre property as far as the eye could see. He imagined, I'd like to suck dick, scrawled in black sharpie on his locker, and worse things, things involving animal blood, things involving matches, but he wasn't gay, he couldn't be. And he watched the naked man aglow on his computer screen, and he touched his erection with a desperate, hollow feeling in his chest, and he thought of a shy boy in his class named Liam. He imagined Liam's palms on his naked back, and he felt himself filled to bursting like a cloth bladder with a fluid called desire. And he said it aloud, gross, I'm not gay. And then his 15-year-old body convulsed with its latest orgasm. The warm ejaculate shot from the fist that clutched the erection and onto the boy's bare stomach. And then he was quietly crying, there in the middle of his room, in the middle of an untenable desert, 
crying with a shame that threatened to set him ablaze and burn the entire suburb to ashes. But he could not know, not one of them could know, that in a high-ceilinged room whose skylight looked myopically upward toward a heartless blue sky, a wheelchair-bound former professor whose suicide had been diverted by a Hungarian madman or visionary intent on eradicating the human species sat motionless while a dozen simpletons dressed as spermatozoa danced around him in clumsy arcs as if in celebration of his disease. The man's breath fed to him through nasal tubes, his body a locked box into which his mind receded deeper every day as if sucked inward toward some cosmic singularity. This man named Henry, wondering what these visions of the cab driver, of the young woman atop the Duomo, of the man beside her filled with longing and gratitude, of the smoke jumper awaiting his demise, of the crying boy unwilling to accept his queerness and doomed to a double life of denial and pursuit, what these visions were, for they arrived within the locked box with great clarity and dimension, and they seemed to have something important to tell him, in the same way that his dream of dragging a hefty bag filled with the parts of a man he'd killed through dark city alleyways had something important to tell him, in the same way that the other increasingly acute vision of enormous bipedal robots calling out chess moves into a dim-lit and empty hangar had something important to tell him. And there were more visions, too, some more easily accounted for than others. He had visions of his own healthy young body, visions of his ex-wife's nakedness beneath him, visions of hundreds of dead passengers on a commuter train that threaded through a strange and isolated city surrounded by great marshy fields of rice. He was a dying man, but he felt so alive. He tried to beckon the Hungarian over to his side. He nodded his head spasmodically. He blinked. He twitched an index finger. He, Henry, had become something. The world quivered with desire and he absorbed it into his own. He was nearly locked in. He was a bomb casing. He was the weapons-grade plutonium of wanting. He was not dead yet, and he was no longer sure he ever would be. Mm. Man, I forgot we were even recording the podcast for a minute. I just got sucked <laughs> into that. <laughs> yeah. Well, oh, thank you. Yeah, so I good. forgot. I forgot too where, where we were and what we were doing. Yeah. 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 I would like you to read to me always. <laughs> you yeah. do have such a good that's reading what, voice. That's what you think. You get bored pretty quickly. So. Well, and what our listeners do not get to see is that you just you make a lot of gestures when you read as well. Yeah, it was funny. Uh, I realized at some point when I was just reading that passage that I was doing that and that there was no need to. There was no audience. Oh, but somehow here. that's, uh, yeah, it's uh, almost reflexive at this point. It, it helps me. It helps me uh, be in the reading. Well, it's about an hour. And so I could sit here probably all day and keep talking to you. But no, we, I guess it's we, time. Yeah. We have to do the things that are meaningless, but that we must do. Yes. It's yes. very important that we do them. That is the, the title of my craft talk. <laughs> what is it exactly? Uh, everything you do is completely meaningless, but it is very important that you do it. Mm. Yeah. I feel like that's the title of this podcast. Yes. Now, yes. Let's, uh, let's use that for everything we can. I believe, I believe Gandhi said that, but there's a, 
uh, sentiment like it in the Bhagavad Gita, which mm. is where I thought I was stealing it from, but I think it's actually Gandhi. Well, thanks, David, for being thanks, on Katie. today. Thanks, Katie. This was yeah. really fun. I hope I didn't. Uh, I hope I didn't talk too much. <laughs> That's the point of this. Yeah, but we'll have you back. There's so much more we didn't even begin yeah, to talk about. That's that's and, true. You know, I yeah. always have this feeling when uh, when I'm talking about my, well, talking about anything, my writing or my life or anything else, that I'm just kind of making it up, and mm-hmm. that if you were to ask me the same set of questions tomorrow, I'd give a completely different set of answers. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wish it was a different way, but there always is something about it that feels a little made up. Well, um, we'll have you back on and figure out if yeah, and then we'll compare. It, yeah, we'll compare the we'll podcast. Compare. Yes. In fact, you could just do it like um, as somebody uh, accusing an, uh, a suspect, <laughs> you know. I, uh, <laughs> you know on December 20th, 2019, you said the following. On, uh, yeah. as, a, as just like a little aside going out. So whenever a faculty member gives a craft talk, there's always a student that introduces them. And I wanted to introduce you, obviously, that right, year, but yeah. somebody else had beat me to it. I won't name them. Yes, I know who it was. Yeah, which their introduction was fine. But I wrote one that at one point when I introduce you for a reading, I'm going to read. But it essentially has to deal with as if we are on you are on trial and I am your lawyer appealing to the council people and your work you're about to read is is the evidence. That sounds that sounds both fantastic. for you and against yes, you. Yeah, I have a I have a story. I know we have to go, but I, I have a story called A Good Human which is framed as a that, that's a great story actually that's that's a story about a human who has ascended to non-sentience <laughs> after like working at a toaster factory for a certain number of years but yeah he's being he's on trial because his non-sentience is a crime mm. uh, yeah so well that's that's for another we, we yes, haven't even yeah. touched on robots or that's true anything so, today. so much more to talk about yeah but, uh, the next one this is really fun all right Okay, that's it for today's episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review on whichever platform you're listening. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Animal Riot Press or through our website, AnimalRiotPress.com. This has been the 44th episode of the Animal Riot Podcast with me, your host, Katie Rainey, and featuring the one and only David John Hollander. Our transcripts for our deaf and hard of hearing animals are provided by Jonathan Kay. This episode was cut by our podcast assistant, Dylan Thomas, and we are produced by me, Katie Rainey. See you later, you filthy animals. Belly.